So we've been walking through this sermon series called Following. We labeled it Following because we really believe that the Sermon on the Mount leads to, everything he's talking about leads to this conclusion that he pushes of will you follow the culture of the day or will you follow Jesus? So he's, he's giving this entire sermon leading into the conclusion. We're finally going to get to the, con- we're going to start the conclusion today. We won't even get through all of the conclusion, but we will get into the conclusion today. But it's all leading up to this conclusion where he's going to ask the question, are you going to follow me? So in order to understand this, we have to understand that during the time of Jesus, there were two main political groups in Israel. Now it's important to note that Jesus is giving this sermon to the Israelites. He's giving this sermon in Israel. He's not giving it in Corinth. I think if, if he was in Corinth, they had a totally different culture. You could think of Corinth as like the Las Vegas of the day. Uh, he might give a totally different sermon. In fact, I think he would definitely give a radically different sermon if this was a sermon in Corinth or in Rome. But he's not giving it in those cities. He's not giving it to that culture. He's giving it to a very specific Second Temple Judaism culture. So he's giving it during the Second Temple period of Judaism. There were two main political groups that were influencing the culture of the day. The first one is the Sadducees. So the Sadducees controlled the temple. They were buddy-buddy with Rome. They were kind of like the political elite. They didn't do a whole lot to shape the culture, though. In fact, the common man did not like the Pharisees because the common man recognized what the Pharisees, or sorry, I just talked to Jen about my dyslexia and how this throws me off, and she's shaking her head right now. The Sadducees, the Sadducees controlled the temple. The common man did not like the Sadducees. The Sadducees were buddy-buddy with Rome, and they were the elites, right? They, they were a wealthy class. The, the common man that wanted to come and, and fulfill the law by coming to the temple and making sacrifices, the Sadducees controlled the monetary system there. So everybody knew that the Sadducees were making a lot of money off of them. And yet, they wanted to follow the law that was written out in God, by God. They wanted to follow the Torah. So they didn't have any other choice. As a result, the common man disliked the Sadducees. So the Sadducees didn't have a huge impact on what the culture looked like. However, the Pharisees were the other political group. The Pharisees controlled the synagogues. Now, you had a couple different, uh, so you had the temple, right? Everybody had to come to the temple for certain times of the year. They had to do the, the sacrificial system at the temple. The temple was, well, the foundation of Second Temple Judaism, but the synagogues were for those who were outside of the range of the temple. So the synagogues became kind of like a community center. In all these small towns throughout Israel, The synagogue wasn't there to replace the temple, but as a way that they could gather together and learn about God. And therefore, it became a community center. Now, they didn't have, not every single Jew had their own personal Bible. We are so privileged with the amount of Bibles we have. We have access to Bible after Bible. I mean, you open up your phone and how many different translations do you have right there? You can get straight to the Greek. But they didn't have that. They were lucky to have one in a community. So if you wanted to go and learn, if if you had a passion for God, and you wanted to go and learn about God and be shaped by God, where did you go? 
You went to where the word of God was. You went to the synagogue. So it was a community center, and it had a lot of influence. Now, the Pharisees, because of their influence over the synagogue, because they were kind of the rulers over the synagogues, they had a lot of influence over the culture. In fact, if the Pharisees decided that you were no longer allowed in the synagogue, then you would be cut off, cut out of society. If they asked you to do something that you didn't want to do, but you didn't do it, so you didn't do it, you could lose all social ties. So as a result, it would be very difficult to stand up to the Pharisees. It would be very difficult, even if you knew it was the right thing to do. It was difficult to do it. To lose all social ties, to lose your community. In a day and age where community, you were absolutely dependent upon your community to survive. It was difficult to stand up to those who could cut you out. Think about Mary and Joseph. As we prepare to celebrate the birth of our Savior, in that culture, it was unacceptable to be pregnant outside of marriage. When I was in middle school, I went to the, to, I was in Colorado. I attended a middle school with the highest teen pregnancy rate in all of Colorado. We were, we were ranked somewhere in the nation with the highest te- teen pregnancy rate, but I can't remember where exactly. It was pretty common to have 13-year-olds pregnant. It wasn't looked down upon. We had a nursery, which actually drew in more. That wasn't the culture of Jesus' day. The culture was if you were pregnant outside of marriage, you would be ostracized. You would be kicked out of society. Not only could you be kicked out of society, but it was culturally acceptable to take the pregnant woman outside and stone her. Meaning you throw stones at her until she dies. That's acceptable. So if Joseph wanted to, it would have been totally acceptable for him to bring Mary outside and for him to throw the first stone. In fact, there was probably some pressure for Joseph to do that very thing. So Joseph was faced with a decision. To do what is right. Or to give in to pressure. To take Mary outside and throw the first stone. Now, Matthew 1 lets us know that Joseph was a righteous man. And because he was a righteous man, he decided to put her away quietly. That doesn't mean that he was going to bring her out into the public square and begin the stoning. That meant he was going to divorce her quietly. He was going to send her away so that she wouldn't have to face the shame of the day. But that might lead some people to ask the question, okay, wait a second, she's pregnant outside of marriage, but he's going to divorce her. What on earth are you talking about here, Aaron? So in Matthew, it also lets us know that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. In, in that, day and a, that day and age, you were betrothed, that means that you were legally married. And you would be legally married for a year, but you didn't consummate that marriage yet. 
So the husband would live out on his own and he would build a house. And when everything was ready, he would go to the wife's family where she was living and he would get her and they would have a big procession, a huge party back to his house. And that was when they would consummate the wedding, the marriage. So they're legally married. They're betrothed, legally married. They just haven't consummated yet. And then Mary shows up pregnant. Now you can imagine all of the rumors that were flying. And part of the pressure for Joseph is, if you don't do this thing, then we know you are in on it too. If you don't do this thing, you must be just as guilty as her, right? Why wouldn't you take out justice on this woman? But Joseph was a righteous man. And so he decides to divorce her quietly, to put her away quietly until an angel of the Lord shows up to him in a dream. And that's when he is convinced this is the Messiah come to save us. I will live out the assignment God has for me. Now put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. The social pressure would be immense the shame and the guilt would follow them the rest of their lives it's not like in america flagstaff is a big enough city you get some shame you start attending a church on the west side of town right it's not like that the culture was very tight-knit To leave your shame behind would take an immense move. So I think this shame followed them around. This shame would follow Joseph and Mary around, and it even follows Jesus around. Later on when he's at the temple and he's confronting Pharisees, they say to him, we know who our father is. As if to say, you don't even know who your father is. You were born to a woman who was just sleeping around. Why on earth do you have any moral authority over us? So the shame is going to follow him around. The shame. And yet, Mary and Joseph knew their assignment. And they knew what they were there to do. They gave God the big yes. That's not just about what I can get out of this. In fact, they knew that this was going to be a hard road. But they knew that it was their assignment. And they would follow Jesus. They would follow God's assignment for them. But that was the type of culture that Jesus lived in. A culture of self-righteous religion. Where if you messed up just once... You could be cut out of society. In a life where it was already difficult to live, nobody wanted to make it more difficult by opposing the Pharisees. And yet Jesus challenges the people. Who will you follow? Will you follow the culture of the day? Will you follow the Pharisees? Or will you follow Jesus? And that is what we'll talk about today as we get into the conclusion We're going to turn to Matthew 7, starting in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is 
easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. So we have entered the closing arguments of the sermon. Uh, a few weeks ago, we learned that verse 12 was kind of like the end, of the, the conclusion of the body. The body of the sermon went all the way from five, uh, around 5.17 all the way to, to 7.12. What, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's kind of the summary of the body. So Jesus has laid out this argument, and I think it's all, it's, this whole argument is a refutation on the self-righteous legalism of the day. It's the self-righteous religious legalism of the Pharisees of the day that, and the culture that Jesus was living in. That's the whole body. And then he comes to this conclusion, and this is the summary. The whole test, Old Testament, the, all, all the prophets and the law go to this summary. That we should do to others what, uh, what, they would, what we would have them do to us. So that's the whole law and the prophets. So he's given us the closing arguments. Now he's, lay, uh, now he's laying out the conclusion. And he forces us in this conclusion to make a decision. Who will you follow? And in this conclusion, he gives us three illustrations. We're going to talk about the first two today. The first one is enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So the first illustration, the first picture he gives us is the picture of a wall and a path. Now, we don't live in walled cities, so we get kind of lost on this, but Jesus lived in a walled city. Jerusalem was a walled city. The walls were built there, where the walls were built all the way around the city, as a way of protecting the city ver against enemies. Now, that was an, old, an older model. By the time Rome had come and taken over, Rome did what's called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, and the walls started to fall down. But the walls in Jerusalem were still there. And if you have walls, you also have to have entrances. You have to have gates. So there are different gates. Now imagine that the the Lesser used paths would have smaller gates, right? The, the more used paths would have bigger gates because it needs to fit more people. And those bigger gates would lead to bigger paths. And what happens when more and more people walk on the path? It actually gets pushed down more. The path gets compressed more and more and becomes an easier path to walk. So you're in a city and you're looking at two different gates. To exit the city from. Which exit are you going to take? Are you going to take the small exit where very few people go? Or are you going to take the big exit where most people are going? Most of us would look at these two gates and of course we're going to take the bigger gate with more people. 
More people means there's more safety. More people means the path is going to be an easier path. And also, by nature, we look around at what other people are doing and we automatically assume they know what they're doing. And so we tend to follow the crowd. That is the nature of humanity. We tend to follow the crowd. That's why airports are typically laid out the way airports are. Because they know that people walk off the plane and you just kind of follow the crowd. Even if the crowd has no clue where they're going, you assume everyone else knows where they're going. So you follow the crowd. So most of us would be in this city and we'd look at these two gates and we'd see the one over there, unless we really knew what we were doing, we'd see the small one with very few people and we'd think, that's not the gate I want to go out of. Clearly, the bigger, the better. I think we are more like cattle and we are more like sheep than we ever like to admit. Our nature is to follow the crowd. But Jesus says that's not the gate to take. The gate that we should take is the narrow gate, the smaller gate. I'm all over the place today. The narrow gate, the smaller gate with the smaller path, the less used path, the path that is actually more difficult to walk. Now, why is it more difficult to walk? Because less people are on it, so it doesn't get packed down as easily. Essentially, it's more difficult because not as many people are walking it. So a lot of people would take this illustration and they see the two gates and they think, okay, so what does each gate represent? And oftentimes they may get into a moral thing. And they, they would say that the, the larger gate is the freedom to do whatever you want. Essentially, the larger gate is a license to live an immoral life. Because that's the easy life, right? You're just passive, you just do what you want. But nowhere in this sermon does Jesus actually address license. The freedom to live an immoral life. And I think it's because that is not really the issue that the culture that Jesus was dealing with faced. Like I said, if he was in Corinth, it'd be a different story. We'd be reading a different sermon on the mount. But that's not the issue. The culture of the day in Jesus' time, in Jesus' area, was a self-righteous legalism. It's a thought, I am good because I'm a Jew. I'm God's elect. I'm God's chosen. Therefore, I am more valued than those lowly, stinking Gentiles. And not only am I a Jew, God's chosen, God's elect, But I follow the law, unlike those sinners over there that don't follow the law. In fact, I'm so good at following the law that all those extra laws that the Pharisees tacked on, I follow those too. I don't do extra work on the Sabbath. I'm so good that I don't I don't use God's name in vain. In fact, I won't even say God's name just in case I might accidentally say it in vain. I won't even write it out. That's how holy I am. 
And you see, the Pharisees, they had such a zeal for God's law. They had such a love for God's law, which is a good thing. But they had such a love for God's law that they started emphasizing God's law over God's grace. And so they made it all about the law. Their whole focus was on God's law. And they wanted to, to, to obey it so much that they started tacking on more and more and more and more. Therefore, they were more holy. And that is the culture that Jesus is addressing. This idea that we can be more valued by God because we not only follow the law, but we add extra laws just to make sure. I'm more holy than you because I follow all the extras. There were these things called mikvahs. Uh, they're kind of like a baptismal. They were all over Israel during that time. And the idea was you had to clean, cleanse yourself before you would enter into God's presence, before you could pray. So there were some of the, the super special religious Jews that any time they were going to pray, they'd go take a dip in a mikvah. It was water. It was fresh running water. So I think of it like a baptismal. Think about that. Every time before you were going to pray, you'd go take a dip in the baptismal just to make sure that you were clean before you went to, to uh, connect with God. They're writing extra laws upon the laws, thinking that they're more holy because they do all the extras. That's the culture that Jesus is wrestling with. So I think what Jesus is getting at with the narrow gate and the, the wide gate is, will you follow the culture of the day or will you follow Jesus? Will you continue down your path with all the Pharisees? Will you give in to societal pressure and do all the extras that they've asked you to do? Or will you live in the freedom that Jesus offers? Will you continue to go with the crowd? Will you continue to believe whatever the false teacher tells you? Will you just go along with the culture of the day? And the culture of Jesus' day was a self-righteous legalism. Because the Pharisees, Pharisees shaped the culture. But our culture is not the same. I think we do struggle with self-righteousness. It doesn't look the same as the Pharisees' self-righteousness. Some of our self-righteousness is like, I'm good, I'm better than you because I recycle. If you live in Dony Park, that gets really difficult, doesn't it? I have so many visitors, I'm like, oh no, don't think less of me. Some people think I'm more righteous because I stand up for a certain political party. Wait, you voted for who? You're definitely not as righteous as I am. I say and I think the right things. Therefore, I'm better than you. One day you'll understand. Maybe one day when you mature like I'm mature. You'll understand. So the culture of Jesus' day was a legalistic, self-righteous religion. Now, if you're in that culture, which path is easier to follow? If you're in a self-righteous, religious, legalistic culture, which gate is wider? If you're Mary and Joseph, which gate is going to be more difficult to enter through? 
following the crowd, going to synagogue. The wide gate and the open path, I think, is going with the culture of the day. Jesus recognizes that peer pressure is real, and we have all felt it, haven't we? It's much easier just to go with the crowd. Whether it's a self-righteous legalism, or it's a self-righteous license, or a straight-up rebellion against God, it's easier to not fight against the crowd. It's easier to not fight against the current culture of the day. It's way easier to just go along with whatever the world tells us. This is what the expert says, so that's what I'm going to believe. Now, both of these gates lead to different paths. One is easy and the other is difficult. The easy path, following the crowd, actually leads to death. You think it is life. We see this justified all around us today. This is what people are doing, so it must be right. Or maybe you see others getting away with it, so you think you can too. But the end of this path leads to death. It may seem like it's wisdom, but it's not. So just following the culture of the day leads to death. Following self-righteousness leads to death. And Jesus is saying the people don't actually know what they are doing. So go through the smaller gate. It will lead to a path that's more difficult. Oftentimes paths that are more difficult are paths that are not used. So the lesser path gets overgrown. You can't spot it as well. And it's more difficult because it's a more lonely path. It is a path that the culture all around you will harass you for. You might get shunned. You might get disowned. For many Christians, this path actually leads to a physical death. If we take the whole world into its perspective, if we take historical Christianity into perspective, this path has led to actual physical death. But it's also the path that leads to life. So the life this path gives isn't just a physical life, but it is an abundant, eternal life. It's living with joy. Even in the midst of the loneliness, even in the midst of the difficulty, even in the midst of the pain, you have a deep, contented joy. I don't think Paul would say that the path he took was an easy path. He gave up being a Pharisee. He got persecuted. There were several times when they thought he was dead. And yet he had a joy that was unexplainable by the rest of the world. That is the abundant life that Jesus promises in this more difficult path. He doesn't promise physical life, but an abundant life. So one of the ways to know if you are walking this path, one of the ways to know if you are, wa- are, are you walking on the difficult path is do I have abundant life? Do I have joy? Do I have a deep joy in my heart? Even when times get tough, even when there's a loneliness, even when it seems like I'm the only one out there doing what God has called me to do, do you have joy in your heart? If not, even if you think you're walking on the 
on the more difficult path. You might actually be walking on the easy path. If there is no joy in your heart, you've been entering by the wide gate. So next, Jesus will transition into a warning that leads to to the second illustration. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. So let's stop there first. So not only is it easier to follow the culture of the day, but there are wolves who claim to be speaking on God's behalf, who are trying to take you off course. These wolves are cunning. They dress the part. They act the part. They know the right words to say. They know scripture. The Pharisees knew scripture. They also knew how to twist it to make you feel like less and to build themselves up to be more. Today, we still have wolves. And these wolves can act the part, can dress the part, can talk the part. They know scripture. And they are incredibly difficult to identify because they dress up like sheep. They try to make themselves look just like you and me. They talk just like you and I do, and they would say that they have a love for Scripture just like you and I do. So in a world, uh, world where it's difficult to identify the world, wolves, how do we identify them? Well, he gives us the way. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or free figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. So how do we recognize wolves? By their fruit. To drive the point home, Jesus gives us a plain as day illustration. You recognize a tree by its fruit, right? When you walk past a tree, you might not know what kind of tree it is. If it's a fruit tree, you'll be wondering until springtime. And then you see the fruit and you think, oh, I was wrong. It's an apple tree. Oh, it's a cherry tree. So a good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. You will recognize the wolves by the fruit they produce. Now, I think it's important really quickly to note that a mistake is not always fruit. I make mistakes. You make mistakes. That's not necessarily fruit. So that leads us to ask, what is bad fruit? How do we recognize bad fruit? And most of us would automatically think of bad behavior, the license side of things. Adultery, divorce, murder, breaking oaths, retaliation. These are all behaviors we can connect in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And I think Jesus would definitely say these are bad fruits. We look at the Pharisees and we look how they twisted scripture so that they could could justify adultery, divorce, murder. They could justify breaking their oaths. They could justify retaliation. And he would say, clearly those are bad fruits. But also, most wolves do a good job of covering these bad fruits up. So we don't see them as well as maybe some other fruits. So how do we identify other fruits? I like how Warren Wearsby identifies wolves. He says, first, or sorry, false prophets who teach false doctrine can produce only a false righteousness. Their fruit 
the results of their ministry, is false and cannot last. The prophets themselves are false. The closer we get to them, the more we see the falsity of their lives and doctrine. They magnify themselves, not Jesus Christ. And their purpose is to exploit people, not to edify them. The person who believes false doctrine or who follows a false prophet will never experience a changed heart. So I think we can pull a couple principles out of Warren Wiersbe's quote here. First, wolves will not let you know them. Oh, don't get me wrong, they'll invite you over to their house for dinner. But while you're there, they'll put on their best face. So you'll never get to know their authentic selves. You will never know their struggles. You will never know their failures. You will never know their fears or their trials or their anxieties. They'll never let you see them at their worst. Because to reveal that would allow you to see them for who they are. Wolves. They don't want you to have ammo against them. So they hide any type of failure. Because they see behavior as ammo. So they care more about how they are perceived than how Christ is perceived. They act and speak so that their righteousness will be on display. Think back to the section on hypocrites, right? These behaviors put righteousness on display. So they want, to, they want everyone to see how great they are while covering up any failure that they might ever have. Because they care about, more about their reputation than about the reputation of Christ. So they put their righteousness on display while covering up their own sin. So they act and speak to display their righteousness, not the righteousness of Christ. And I have to say this, when I talk about my failures, I think I'm actually highlighting Christ. When I talk about my failures, I'm actually highlighting Christ because he has saved me from my failures. He has changed my heart. So I can look back at what a mess I was and, and actually put Christ's glory on display by saying, this is who I was. But see how he's changing me? He's molding me? He's shaping me? If, I weren't, if it weren't for Christ, I would still be a huge, selfish jerk. So when we talk about our failures, it actually allows others to process through their failures as well. And that's an important part of displaying Christ's glory instead of my own. So Grace says, come out of the dark room of shame. Here, I, I, I can relate to you because I've failed on such a great aspect like that. But because of who God is and because of his grace in my life, I have, I have come out of the dark room of shame and I have entered into God's grace. And you can do that as well. But wolves want us to remain in the dark room of shame. Because in, when you're in the dark room of shame, they have control. So one of the ways to measure if you're dealing with a wolf is you ask yourself, do I hide who I am around them? Because I'm afraid that they are going to use that against me. Do I hide who I am around them because I know that they're just going to shame me when I confess my sin? Am I afraid of being shamed when I'm around them? Am I constantly trying to live up to a standard that I cannot act actually obtain? 
The third principle I think we can pull from this is they are living in their own strength. Their fruit can be very realistic, but it is fake fruit. Fake fruit looks real. In fact, oftentimes, fake fruit looks better than real fruit, doesn't it? You walk into a house with some fake fruit on the table, and you think, man, I'd like to take a bite out of that apple. But don't, because it's toxic. Fake fruit looks real, but it is toxic. Now, we can white-knuckle fruit. We can work really hard to produce righteous-looking behavior. But if it's not coming through a changed heart, it's actually fake fruit. I go back to the book of Galatians and Colossians, two books that point out self-righteousness is actually no use against the flesh. The harder you work, and Colossians spells it out very clearly, that there are things that say, there are people that say, do not taste, do not touch, do not do all this stuff. And that it has an appearance of wisdom. But Paul writes, it has no use against the flesh. That just produces fake fruit. The fake it until you make it idea. Just behave, just behave. And the focus is all on behavior and totally leaves behind the heart. And it just doesn't work out. The only way to be free from sin is to focus in on God. You cannot hate your sin enough to be free from it. If you are producing fake fruit, eventually sin will consume you. So these wolves produce fake fruit that's difficult to spot, and they can be really convincing. They can make you feel like they're right, even when they are wrong. And that is one of the reasons why we need community. We need to be involved in each other's lives. It's difficult to be a wolf when others intimately know you when they know your struggles, when they know your fears, when they know the sins that you struggle with, it's difficult to be a wolf. So I think wolves are revealed when we live in authentic Christian community. When we are being real with one another, the wolves are revealed. So Jesus has laid out this entire argument refuting self-righteous religion of the day. He begins the conclusion by forcing the multitudes to choose. Will you go with the culture through the wide gate and the easy path? That was the culture of their day, a self-righteous legalism. But what is the culture of our day demanding of us? What is the culture of our day saying, you will get really uncomfortable in this life. You will get canceled if you don't. Affirm my sin? If you don't affirm my sexual identity, you might get canceled. If you don't pursue the love of money, if you don't love money and hobbies like I do, if you judge anyone at all for any reason, if you don't believe that my body is my choice, if you don't trust the expert, if you don't vote for my candidate, life is going to get really uncomfortable for you. 
Our culture does not look the same as the culture Jesus lived in. And yet, entering the narrow gate is the same principle. Following Jesus is the same principle. When the world around you is screaming for you to give in, when the world around you is saying, come with us or else, enter through the wide gates, enter into the easy path or else, Jesus is saying, don't take that path. Don't go the way of the world. Instead, follow him. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that uh, your principles cross all cultural bounds. Even if our culture doesn't look like the culture where you were ministering, your principles are still the same. And we thank you for the invitation to follow you. We pray that you would give us the wisdom and discernment to recognize fake wolves. The wolves that want us to want entice us into the wide gate. But we pray that you would give us the strength to enter in through the narrow gate and take the difficult path. In your name we pray. Amen.